It's 2001 in Adelaide, Australia. Author and screenwriter Louis Naura is a man in demand. His latest Hollywood screenplay, Cold War thriller K-9, The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson, is currently in production. But today, Naura is focused on his next project, a story much closer to home, one that has haunted Australia for nearly 50 years. It's the story of one of Australia's most controversial crimes, or rather, one of Australia's most controversial police investigations. It's the story of Rupert Maxwell Stewart. In 1958, Stewart, a 27-year-old Aboriginal Australian, was convicted and sentenced to death after confessing to the assault and murder of nine-year-old Mary Hatton. But the truth of how that confession was really obtained has been surrounded in mystery for decades. To get the details, Naura is now sitting down with former Detective Sergeant Paul Turner, the man who conducted the murder investigation back in the 1950s. Louis Naura sits beside Turner and turns on his tape recorder. The aged ex-policeman's breath is labored and his energy is limited. You see, the former Detective Sergeant from Adelaide's homicide squad is on his deathbed. Naura is desperate to get Turner's side of the story before it's too late. The case of Rupert Maxwell Stewart is infamous, the subject of a bitter legal battle and a media sensation. It also turned out to be a landmark event for the civil rights of Aboriginal Australians, but many of the details are still much debated. Naura asks Turner to talk him through the events of December 1958. The two men go over the case in detail, from finding the young girl's body to the clues left behind by the attacker, tracking down their suspect, Rupert Maxwell Stewart, his subsequent arrest, the interrogation, and Stewart's eventual confession. But when the conversation lands on the confession, Turner becomes uncomfortable. No wonder. The police, the law courts, and even the government at the time all found themselves under immense pressure from Stewart's lawyers and the Australian public. You see, Stewart insisted upon his innocence throughout the trial. Moreover, he's always claimed the supposed confession, the primary evidence that convicted him, was violently beaten out of him. Being illiterate and speaking limited English, he was then made to sign a typed up version of it, which he also did under duress. Needless to say, it's a sensitive issue for the police officer who was in charge of the case at the time. Louis Naura presses Turner on the details. Turner is hesitant. Naura sees it in his eyes. Something is troubling him. For nearly 50 years, Turner has stood by the official report. He has ardently defended his investigation and his officer's conduct throughout. But now, perhaps knowing his time on Earth is limited, he decides to come clean. Turner suddenly makes two stunning admissions. Firstly, he reveals that Stewart's confession was coerced, though not in the way Stewart claims. Turner says that when he and the other officers questioned Stewart, they pretended to be jovial, were kind and made jokes. Through laughter and a false sense of camaraderie, 
Turner claims they jollied Stewart into confessing to the murder and sexual assault of young Mary Haddam. Quite what jollies means is left open to interpretation. Turner doesn't go as far as saying that Stewart was innocent, but he hints at crossed lines and broken rules. Then the second revelation comes. Turner also shamefully admits that his officers did violently abuse their prisoner, but he hastily adds that they only attacked Stewart after the Aboriginal man signed his confession, not before. Still, Turner's admission reverses 50 years of police denial and now pulls the legitimacy of the whole case into question. Louis Nowra can hardly believe it. Rupert Maxwell Stewart was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging on April 24, 1959. Was Stewart innocent after all? Was he the victim of police brutality just as he always claimed? Or did the cops simply cut corners to get their man? Nowra's film, which will be titled Black and White, now has the chance to answer the mystery once and for all. Was Rupert Maxwell Stewart wrongly convicted? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Rupert Maxwell Stewart, an Aboriginal man whose confession of murder is clouded in controversy. It's about how the Australian police may have abused their power to get a conviction, and how one man's choice to believe in Stewart snowballs into a media frenzy and a national campaign to save a man from the gallows. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today.
It's early afternoon on Saturday, December 20th, 1958 in South Australia. It's summertime down under, and the skies are a vivid blue over Thevenard. This small seaside settlement jutting out into the Indian Ocean is hundreds of miles from any major city. The nearest town, Seduna, is linked to Thevenard by a wide, white sand beach and rolling grassy dunes backed by looming limestone cliffs. Today, three children are playing on the beach. Mary Haddam, age nine, her brother Peter, age 10, and another local boy. It's about 2.30 p.m. Mary is left alone on the beach while her brother and his friend run home to get a tin tub to float in the shallows. The boys assure her that they won't be gone long. Mary doesn't seem to care. She is perfectly fine playing alone. Little do the boys know, this is the last time anyone will see Mary Haddam alive. Mary's brother and his friend return to the beach a little after 3 p.m., but they can't find her. The spot where they left her is deserted. They shout her name, but there's no answer. Thinking she's wandered off, the boys go and play without her. By mid-afternoon, Peter returns home alone to discover Mary is still missing. Mary's parents start to worry. Around 4 p.m., Mary's father goes out looking for her. He wanders up and down the seafront calling her name. He rushes back into town knocking on doors. Nothing. Now panicking, Mary's parents muster up a group of neighbors to search for their daughter. They speak to a local fisherman who claims the beach was empty at 3.45 p.m. when he anchored his boat. Eventually, local police from Seduna step in and take control of the search parties. But as daylight wanes, there's still no sign of the missing girl. It's just after midnight and Mary has been missing for nearly 12 hours when a search party enters a small cave in the cliffs above the beach. Their flashlights illuminate the damp sandy floor and the brown, lichen-stained limestone. There's a collective gasp of terror as they spy the blood spatter on the cave's walls and ceiling. It's a horrific scene. There lying on the ground of the dank cave, prostrate and lifeless, is young Mary Haddam. Beside her head is a rock covered in blood. The police secure the cave and bring in a local doctor to examine the body. He estimates the time of death as somewhere between 2 and 3.30 p.m. It's clear her skull has been fractured in two places and that the murder weapon is the bloody rock found nearby. On closer inspection, the doctor is able to reveal the full, distressing reality of the poor girl's ordeal. Human hair is found beneath her fingernails, presumably her attacker. The doctor also reluctantly confirms that Mary Haddam was sexually assaulted. Mary's parents are beyond devastated. The whole town is in shock. A monstrous crime of this magnitude is unheard of in these parts. Who could have committed such evil? And where are they now? No one witnessed anything out of the ordinary or saw anyone in the area during the time Mary was left alone. But fortunately for the police, the killer has left a trail, quite literally. Clearly preserved in the wet sand of the cave floor is a set of footsteps leading out onto the beach. 
the footsteps of Mary's killer. The following morning, Saturday, December 21st, the manhunt begins. The small Seduna Police Department are quick to call in the big guns. They contact South Australia Police Headquarters in Adelaide. Even 300 miles away, it's the nearest major city. They ask them to send over a homicide team to take charge. Leading the hunt for Mary's killer is Detective Sergeant Paul Turner. He has flown in with Constable Jones along with photographer and fingerprint expert Sergeant Lowe and two more officers from Port Lincoln. First on Turner's to-do list is to examine the footprints inside the cave where Mary Hatton was found. Turner brings in two expert Aboriginal trackers who carefully move through the damp cave, studying the footprints' patterns. The prints move from inside the cave to a small pool, then back again. It's possible the killer cleaned himself up in the pool after the attack. But that's not all. The tracks then go down the beach and head towards the small town of Seduna. Allegedly, after studying the size, shape, and positioning of the footprint, the trackers managed to reach a remarkable conclusion. They identify this barefooted killer as an Aranda man, a person from a distinct Aboriginal population in Central Australia. They also believe he likely lives down here amongst white Australians. The incredible abilities of Australia's indigenous trackers are well known, but even so, this is quite a deduction. If they are correct, then the list of possible suspects is now extremely limited. Another possible clue soon presents itself. Given the rough limestone inside the cave, the police believe the murderer likely has abrasions on his knees from the sexual assault, along with whatever marks might have been caused by the child's fingernails. With tracks leading to Seduna, the police focus their attention there. They are looking for an Aboriginal man living and working within the white community with markings on his knees. It's Monday, December 22nd. Detective Sergeant Paul Turner gets his first lead from an unexpected source. The police in Seduna get a call from a detective in Wyala, a town over 200 miles away. This officer has just spoken with a Mr. Norman Giesman, a traveling carnival operator who arrived in town over the weekend. Turns out, this carnival has just traveled from Seduna. Naturally, they asked Giesman about his staff, if he suspects any of them of being capable of the murder or if anyone was acting suspiciously. The operator cannot say, but when asked if any of his employees were absent for any length of time over the weekend, he reveals something that's very interesting indeed. He mentions he fired a 27-year-old Aranda man who showed up late for work on Sunday. Apparently, he'd spent the night in the Seduna police station for drinking, something prohibited for many Aboriginal Australians by law. He also can't fully account for the man's movements on Saturday afternoon either, the day Mary Haddam was killed. The detective takes the man's name, Rupert Maxwell Stewart. Detective Sergeant Turner wastes no time in following this lead and tracking down the Aranda carnival worker. It's been over 48 hours since the crime was committed. 
he might expect Stewart to be long gone. But it seems his prime suspect hasn't gone very far at all. In fact, by 10 p.m. Monday evening, Turner and his men have located Stewart's lodgings at a facility belonging to the Australian Wheat Board right here in the Venard. It seems Stewart found a new job at the Wheat and Grain Factory the very day he was fired. By coincidence, the factory is only a few hundred yards from the cave where Mary Haddam was murdered. If he is the perpetrator, clearly Stewart is not overly concerned with putting any distance between himself and the crime scene. Detective Sergeant Turner leads his men into Stewart's living quarters, but the suspect is nowhere to be seen. They rummage through Stewart's sparse possessions, examining the few shirts and trousers he owns. They're looking for bloodstains, but don't find any. It's possible he got rid of them. They haven't been conducting the search for long when Turner suddenly stops. There, standing in the doorway, is a black Aranda man with dark eyes and chubby face. He is shirtless and wearing shorts. By the look on the man's face, he's both surprised and confused to find Turner and his men in his room. Turner seizes the man, demanding to know his name. He gives it, Rupert Maxwell Stewart. Turner says, you are the fellow we're looking for, for murdering the girl. Stewart, speaking in faltering pidgin English, claims he doesn't know what they're talking about. Turner asks where he's been and accuses Stewart of hiding from the police. Stewart swears he'd only been away a few minutes, saying he was just in the bathroom. Hoping to get a quick confession, Turner suddenly announces that they have identified a set of footprints that match Stewart's description and a random man living among white Australians. Turner stares Stewart square in the eyes and tells him the expert trackers will prove the footprints are his. The terrified factory worker continues to swear he didn't kill anyone, but Turner isn't having it. He orders his men to take Stewart to a waiting patrol car. The suspect is thrown into the back of the vehicle, still protesting his innocence. At the Seduna police station, Rupert Maxwell Stewart sits at a table in a small interrogation room with blank walls. Across from him is Detective Sergeant Turner. Four other officers are in the room. One sits at a typewriter, transcribing the interview as Turner begins questioning his suspect. Turner is a pro. He laughs and jokes and tries to get Stewart to relax. But it's not straightforward. Stewart does not speak English well at all. His primary language is Aranda, an Aboriginal dialect. And yet, for some reason, no translator is brought in. According to the official police report, the questioning goes as follows. Turner first tells Stewart that a little girl has been sexually assaulted and murdered on the Thevenard Beach, not far from where he works. He pauses, looking for any reaction. He then casually asks if Stewart happened to be in the Thevenard on Saturday afternoon. Stewart, relaxing a little, freely admits he had been there that day. He recounts that he had a few drinks before walking back to Seduna via the main road. Turner suggests that surely the beach would be a shorter route. Stewart can't remember exactly. He agrees that he might have walked along the beach for a while. Turner, smelling weakness, sets a trap. He asks Stewart if he walked barefoot. But when Stewart swears he wore boots, Turner becomes serious. 
He cautions his prisoner that the expert trackers will be along shortly, and they will prove otherwise. Switching gears, he warns Stuart it'll be better for him if he confesses. Turner then demands the Aboriginal man strip. He wants to examine his body. Marks on Stuart's left and right knees are pointed out. Marks the detectives believe are from the rough floor of the limestone cave. And that's not all. Turner's men find small scratches on Stuart's back and shoulder blades. Stuart is mystified. He's a laborer. Most of the marks are old and he doesn't remember where they came from. Turner turns the screw. He's not laughing now. He returns to the subject of the footprints and the trackers and tells Stuart his feet are going to be checked next for comparison. The detective looms over his prisoner, almost face to face. Turner asks Stuart what he thinks the trackers are going to say. Allegedly, this is when Stuart breaks, apparently saying, I will tell you the truth. I saw the little girl murdered, but I did not do it. Apparently, at this point, one officer poses a trick question to catch Stuart out. He is asked whether a white man told him to commit the crime. Stuart, it seems, takes the bait, saying that he did see a white man on the beach. This man pulled a gun on him and ordered him to carry the dead girl into the cave. The officers laugh it off and call Stuart a liar. Perhaps backtracking or panicking, Stuart admits he'd been drinking and his memory isn't clear. Turner presses Stewart and describes the violent scene they found in the cave. According to the report, Stewart finally relents, saying, I must have done it, but I don't remember doing it. Even in this official version of the interview, it's easy to imagine Stewart's head spinning, feeling like the walls are closing in on him. The hours of rapid questions, if indeed he fully understands his English-speaking interrogators, must be confusing. But in the end, it seems Rupert Maxwell Stewart admits to assaulting and killing Mary Hatton. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now Turner closes the net. He needs Stewart to clarify his story on the record. Since Stewart can't read or write, his confession is typed up by another officer. 
Turner and his officers will all later swear it is, quote, a literal and exact confession, word for word. According to the typed confession, Stewart admits that he saw Mary Haddam playing in a little pool and lured her into the cave. Once inside, Stewart struck Mary and knocked her out before he assaulted her. When asked why he killed her, Stewart simply says he did not want her to tell anyone what he had done. He also admits to striking her six times on the head with a rock. Next, Stewart explains how he took off his clothes to avoid getting blood on them, and afterwards how he washed himself in the pool. The confession is everything the detectives had hoped for, even conveniently explaining the lack of any physical evidence on Stewart himself. The typed-up conversation confirms that Stewart, despite apparently being drunk, now clearly recalls the exact sequence of events and specific details, like when and where he took his boots on and off and what Mary Haddam was wearing. As far as confessions go, it's a home run. Finally, Turner says to Stewart, then you can remember clearly what you did? To which Stewart replies, I can't remember everything, but I would not have done it if I had not had wine. It must have been that what made me do it. The written statement is put before Stewart, and he signs his name, misspelling it in the process. After signing, Stewart's footprints are examined by the trackers. They point at him, confirming he is a match to those found at the beach. It's been a long night, but finally, Deputy Sergeant Turner has everything he wants. Rupert Maxwell Stewart is formally arrested and charged with the murder of Mary Haddam. But according to Turner's deathbed confession, things don't end there. With a guilty man now in their possession, Detective Sergeant Turner and his officers decide to dole out their own punishment on the child killer. They proceed to violently assault Stewart. Little does anyone in the room know Stewart's case will soon become national news, and this incident will be the source of decades of fierce debate. Needless to say, Rupert Maxwell Stewart has his own version of events, one where he freely admitted to nothing, where he was in constant fear of his life, and where he was violently abused from the moment he was taken into custody. But whose version of the truth will a jury believe? It's April 24th, 1959, in Adelaide. Five months have passed since Stewart's arrest. After a short hearing, his four-day trial before the Supreme Court is coming to a quick end. During the proceedings, Stewart's pro bono, state-appointed lawyer has argued that police used violence and threats to obtain a false confession from his client. Taking the decision not to put Stewart on the stand for cross-examination, instead, he reads a statement to the court on Stewart's behalf. I cannot read or write, never been to school. I did not see the little girl. I did not kill her. Police hit me, choke me, make me said these words. They say I kill her. That is what I want to say. Someone to read this out for me. Needless to say, Detective Sergeant Turner and the other police officers 
ardently deny this and swear the confession was freely given and recorded word for word. As the footprints and hair samples are not able to be examined forensically, they are not considered as evidence. In fact, there is zero physical proof that Stewart was the perpetrator. Incredibly, despite Stewart claiming he was nowhere near the cave at the time of the murder, it seems no one makes any effort to investigate his alibi. Not the police, the judge, or even Stewart's own lawyer. In the end, it all boils down to who the jury believes about the confession. Speaking directly to the jury, the judge emphasizes his view that Stewart freely and voluntarily confessed to the crime. So after a brief deliberation, the jury announces that they find Rupert Maxwell Stewart guilty of murder. They sentence him to death. It's May 1959 at the Yatala Labor Prison. In just over a week, the 27-year-old Stewart will face the hangman. Hoping to prepare the condemned man for the end, the prison chaplain offers his services. But there's a problem. He struggles to understand the Aranda man's broken English. But it just so happens he knows of a local Catholic priest, Father Tom Dixon, who is fluent in Stewart's native tongue. Father Dixon sits with Stewart in order to give the final sacraments he must first hear Stewart's confession. This time speaking in his own language, Stewart again insists on his innocence. At first, Father Dixon dismisses his protest. He's heard it all before, but Stewart doesn't relent. Stewart tells how the police abused him from the outset. They repeatedly accused him of the murder, threatening him and intimidating him. They even threatened to skin him with a razor blade. During the interrogation, Stewart relives how one officer nearly punched him clean off his chair and how another choked him, pressing his thumbs deep into his neck. Fearful for his life, Stewart just agreed to everything, telling Father Dixon, I thought they would kill me if I didn't say what they wanted. Father Dixon is moved by Stewart's tale, but remains doubtful. Still, he decides to do a little digging of his own. With just days until the execution, Father Dixon gets his hands on Stewart's typed, supposedly word-perfect confession. He is shocked by what he reads. He knows Stewart is semi-literate and speaks only broken English. Reading Stewart's signed confession, written in fluent, educated English, he believes there is no way it could be a verbatim dictation as is claimed. Father Dixon grows concerned he knows something isn't right and that Stewart's execution is imminent. He quickly enlists the help of a friend, anthropologist Ted Stralo. By chance, Stralo is an old friend of Stewart's family. Having lived around Alice Springs and the Northern Territories, he knows the area well. Stralo is only too happy to help. He too reads the written confession and meets with Stewart. There is no doubt in Stralo's opinion that something is terribly wrong. Commenting on the confession, Stralo, an expert linguist, says, I had never seen a document even faintly resembling the one I was now looking at. He adds that, could have been composed only by some person who was well-versed in legal procedure and in the practice of giving court evidence. 
In his view, the confession is false. Rupert Maxwell Stewart did not say these words. It's May 20th, just four days before Stewart's scheduled execution. Stralo submits an affidavit that Stewart's confession is not genuine to the high court. Hoping to stay the execution with just days to go, the request is granted. But they've no time to lose. Having officially taken up Stewart's cause, Father Dixon and Stewart's lawyer petition for a retrial. But after months of back and forth, their request is denied and the death sentence is upheld. He's scheduled to hang on July 7th. Growing desperate, they decide to appeal to higher power, the head of the government. But on July 6th, the day before Stewart's rearranged execution, Australian Premier Tom Playford's office issues the following statement. The prisoner is left for execution in due course of the law. No recommendation is made for pardon or reprieve. In one final act of defiance, Stewart's lawyer appeals the only power left. He telegrams the Privy Council, a body of advisors in the UK with jurisdiction spanning the British Commonwealth. He begs the council to intervene. Once again, with just hours remaining until Stewart is due to die, he gets a break. The Privy Council order another delay so Stewart's lawyer can travel to London to present his case. It's another close call, but all they've bought is time. There's no guarantee the council will interfere with Stewart's case. While Stewart's lawyer goes to England, Father Dixon seeks another course of action to help his friend. Having been failed by the court of law, he decides to take a chance on the court of public opinion. He'll go to the press. It's July, 1959. Father Dixon sits in a cafe with a journalist from the Sydney Morning Herald. The newsman hears Dixon out and agrees Stewart's case could be a front page story. The reporter also believes that Father Dixon, the Catholic priest turned moral crusader, is the perfect man to lead the charge. By July 21st, the story is headline news and on the 22nd, it is rerun in the Melbourne Herald. Word spreads and quickly generates great public sympathy for Stewart. It soon sparks countless debates about his case, Aboriginal civil rights, tackling prejudice in the judicial system, as well as fresh protests against the death penalty. As public interest grows, so does pressure on the Australian government to review Stewart's case. But Father Dixon knows, aside from challenging the confession, what Stewart most desperately needs is court to hear his alibi. You see, Stewart has always maintained he had one, but it was never investigated at the time. Back then, Stewart's trial lawyer had shrugged and claimed he lacked the funds to check leads or interview witnesses. Well, luckily for Stewart, the court of public opinion is better funded. Father Dixon is put in touch with the editor of the news, an Adelaide paper owned by young media boss Rupert Murdoch, who agrees to fund a campaign. With his expenses covered and assisted by a journalist, Father Dixon now goes on the hunt for those witnesses who may have been overlooked. Witnesses he suspects are some 2,000 miles away in Queensland, with Norman Geesman's traveling carnival. 
It's July 27th. Father Dixon and the reporter from the news landed in Queensland a few days ago. They are armed with statutory declarations, legal statements witnesses can sign to attest to Stewart's whereabouts on the day of the murder. After driving 500 miles, they track down the carnival, where Father Dixon interviews Mr. and Mrs. Giesman and one of their employees named Miss Betty Hopes. Betty Hopes says that she worked in the same tent as Stewart. She recalls that Stewart ran the dart stall nearby and adds, he did not leave the stall and he was in full view of me. She swears Stewart was there on the Saturday Mary Haddam was murdered from just after 1 p.m. until 4 p.m. The Geesemans corroborate Betty Hope's statement. Bingo. Father Dixon gets his three witnesses to sign the statutory declarations, and they agree to have their testimonies published by the news. Without wasting time, Father Dixon relays the breakthrough to Stewart's attorney, who is in London, before he meets with the Privy Council. Presented with the new witness statements, the Privy Council recommends that the Australian government arrange a royal commission. This is an official investigation into how the trial was handled, which, if justified, can then order a retrial. For the first time in years, Rupert Maxwell Stewart can dare to hope that he might yet be saved from the noose. En route back to Adelaide, Father Dixon knows what he has uncovered is big. If Stewart had been working at the carnival until 4 p.m., then he couldn't have murdered Mary Haddam between 2 and 3.30 p.m. Which means, not only was the confession forced and the investigation mishandled, but that Rupert Maxwell Stewart is innocent. Following Father Dixon's investigation, the press coverage explodes. Every major paper re-examines the Stewart case. The news publishes Stewart's alibi and continues to criticize the initial trial. The news and the advertiser both allocate the entirety of the correspondence pages to Stewart. 75% of those who write in think Stewart's life should be spared. Writers call upon Premier Playford to reverse Stewart's death sentence. Others demand a retrial. But there is pushback. The Police Association issues statements swearing to the investigation's integrity and insisting that Stewart's confession is verbatim. Perhaps this should not come as a surprise, given the Police Association's president is Detective Sergeant Turner, the man who arrested and interrogated Stewart. With the mounting pressure from the media in the UK, Premier Playford is forced to take action. In line with advice from the UK government, he orders a royal commission. An investigation into Stewart's trial will finally commence. Sadly, though perhaps unsurprisingly, it is soon apparent that the royal commission is also riddled with problems. Commissioners are appointed who also sat on the initial trial and have already blocked Stewart's appeals. It's not long before accusations of conspiracy and cover-up are leveled at the government from the press and public. For the embattled politician, Tom Playford, there's nowhere to hide, not even at home. The premier's own daughter is critical of his lack of sympathy for Stewart, the shocking scarcity of evidence, and the inhumanity of the death penalty. He eventually relents 
bowing to the sustained public scrutiny. Despite the commissioner's recommendations, Premier Playford, without explanation, suddenly decides to commute Stewart's death sentence and grant him clemency. It's a huge success, and no doubt comes as an immense relief to Stewart, his lawyer, and Father Dixon. After all their hard work combined with the media buzz, Stewart's life is saved. But he isn't off scot-free. While he might be spared the hangman, Stewart has not been acquitted of his crime. The government doesn't grant a pardon nor order a retrial. That, Playford leaves to the Royal Commission. Months later, on December 3, 1959, almost a year since Stewart was arrested, the commissioners released their 41-page report. Given the likely biases of the commissioners, it is again no surprise that they conclude that Stewart's original conviction is justified. Although Stewart is saved from the gallows, it seems he will still live the rest of his life behind bars. For Rupert Maxwell Stewart, the next 14 years might seem like a mixed blessing. In his view, and to the eyes of many, he has been unjustly imprisoned at the hands of a flawed investigation and prejudiced trial. But while locked up in Yatala Labor Prison, he chooses to make the best of the lifeline he's been handed. He educates himself, learning to read and write in English, and falls in love with painting watercolors. And so the years roll by with Stuart committed to bettering himself. In October 1973, after 14 years in prison, Stuart is released on parole. However, now in his 40s, he's become somewhat institutionalized and struggles to adjust to life on the outside. Between 1974 and 1984, Stuart finds himself back in and out of prison. Sadly, this is mainly for minor parole violations, specifically being caught drinking. You see, despite the alcohol ban for Aboriginal people having been lifted, Stuart is still considered dangerous and is personally barred from touching a drop. And as an alcoholic, this proves hard for him to say the least. Still, Stuart eventually finds happiness. He marries and by 1984 settles in Santa Teresa, not far from his ancestral home of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory of Australia. He eventually stops drinking for good and secures a job with the Central Land Council, an organization representing Aboriginal people with land issues. With his growing responsibilities as a husband and now father, this new job helps his rehabilitation into society. Over the next few decades, he leads a quiet life out of the public eye, devoted to his work, family, and community. It's 2002, a year after screenwriter Louis Naura interviewed former Detective Sergeant Paul Turner and heard his shocking deathbed confession. His film, Black and White, depicting Stewart's life story, has just come out. Taking all the facts into consideration, the filmmakers pick a careful path through complications of Stewart's case. When it comes to the controversial confession scene, now represents multiple conflicting versions, making the quest for truth the central idea, but avoids passing judgment himself. In the end, they leave the audience to decide for themselves 
whose story to believe. Stewart says of it, it ain't half bad. Nor does he worry that people might think less of him due to the film. He adds, people already know it's all written in the newspapers. Through education and giving up booze, Rupert Maxwell Stewart now lives a reformed life. In fact, the 70-year-old ex-convict has emerged as one of Australia's foremost Aboriginal leaders. The past is behind him, though he does tell a reporter that he'd still like the chance to clear his name in court, if he had the money. Still, despite his ease and self-confidence, even after all these years, not everyone is entirely sold on Stewart's innocence. Author of The Stewart Case, Historian Ken Inglis reported on the trial for the Nation newspaper back in the 1950s. At the time, he was one of Stewart's main champions, fighting the injustice of the courts. But when it comes to determining Stewart's guilt, he remains open to the possibility. Even Louis Naura, Detective Turner's confessor and Stewart's Hollywood biographer, actually concedes that Stewart may well have committed the awful crime. Conversely, the film's director believed Stewart's story in the end. You see, one key piece of the puzzle that was left out of the film was also absent from the original trial. The reason Rupert Maxwell Stewart never formally defended himself in court or called witnesses at the time is that he would have to declare his existing criminal record, a record that included a 1957 charge of indecently touching a young girl in Cloncurry, Queensland. It's a troubling fact that no doubt would have swayed a jury against him. Was it also enough to prejudice the minds of investigating officers and prosecuting lawyers? We'll never know. But whatever else it is, it's not evidence that he attacked or killed Mary Haddam in December 1958. And that's the point. On the issue of his innocence, it seems the court of public opinion will remain undecided. We will never know with certainty who murdered Mary Haddam. The best piece of vital DNA evidence was never explored. Hair found under Mary's fingernails. These could have damned or exonerated Stuart, but they were never examined by modern forensic science because they were mysteriously destroyed by the authorities. But without a doubt, Stuart's case became a landmark event in reforming the South Australian justice system, including the abolition of the death penalty and better provisions for Aboriginal defendants. As a direct result of Stewart's trial, numerous other murder cases were reopened, and nine wrongful convictions were overturned, convictions which sadly included men who had already been hanged for their alleged crimes. In the end, guilty or not, Stewart served his sentence, and the question of innocence has never troubled the people in his local community who cherished his leadership. In his elder years as a tribal leader in Alice Springs, Stewart was the custodian of stories, dances, and songs that only a handful of Aranda people know. When Stewart died, aged 82, in 2014, the legacy he left behind, particularly amongst his tribe's people, is not his connection to the murder of Mary Haddam, but his journey to reclaiming his Aranda heritage and becoming a pillar in the community working to inspire others to cherish their culture. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Ray Wood, 
an undercover cop with a guilty secret. As he nears the end of his life, 79-year-old Ray Wood claims that he played a part in one of America's most famous murders, the assassination of Malcolm X. Ray confesses that he worked with the NYPD and FBI to devise a sinister scheme that would end the life of the celebrated and controversial civil rights leader. Now, over 50 years since that fateful day, Ray is ready to tell the world his truth. He believes he has the answer to a question which haunts America to this day. Who really killed Malcolm X? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Luke Coons. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.